The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In talking about our guest today, author Zadie Smith wrote, quote, Marion Turner is a wonderful Chaucer scholar, able to convey the fascination of his works and world over the great distance of 600 years, end quote. As we might expect, Marion Turner, scholar and expert in the works and world of Geoffrey Chaucer, has written a book about Chaucer. What's perhaps less expected is that she went on to write another book, a biography of Chaucer's most enduring creation, The Wife of Bath. Alison of Bath is one of those rare figures who emerged from the pages of their works and become something larger in the culture— a prototype of sorts available for claiming by everyone from 17th century balladeers to Polish communists and post-colonial black British women writers. She's been discussed and denounced, admired and allegorized, censored and celebrated for 600 years. But why? And what can we learn from her travels and treatment? We'll talk to Marion Turner about her book, The Wife of Bath, A Biography today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. This is a fun one. Our entree into the world of Chaucer, coming at that 14th century poet through a 21st century angle, and a a different kind of angle, too, coming at him through his character, the Wife of Bath. So here's a quick recap for those of you not as immersed in the Canterbury Tales as Professor Turner. Chaucer was born in London sometime in the 1340s and died there in 1400 somewhere in his mid-fifties. He is sometimes called the father of English literature or the father of English poetry, and we're going to save his full biography for an upcoming episode. Our focus today is his work, The Canterbury Tales, 24 stories written in Middle English, fairly long stories, more than 17,000 lines. The conceit is that a group of pilgrims who are on their way from London to Canterbury where they intend to visit the cathedral holding the shrine of St. Thomas Becket, hold a storytelling contest on their way. And from that clothesline, the stories hang like a couple of dozen garments. We hear from a knight, a miller, a cook, a physician, a squire, and so on. If this reminds you of Boccaccio and the Decameron, you have identified the work in Italian that came about 20 years before this one, was begun. Chaucer not only had access to Boccaccio's work, he read Petrarch and Dante, and some scholars think he may have met Boccaccio or Petrarch. Chaucer's plan was to write many more of these tales, 120 of them, four each by 30 characters, two stories told on the way there and two on the way back. He didn't finish the plan, but what he left us was enough to make him revered throughout the centuries, and the best known of all of these tales, and maybe has always been the best known, is the one of the wife of Bath. Striking for delivering in the first person the point of view of a woman, a clever, observant, worldly woman who speaks in a period of shifting mores and a male-dominated world. Something about her and her story clicked. Something has led to her being as famous as the work itself, and at times seemingly even more so. We'll ask our guest why that is. Marion Turner, 
after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Marion Turner, who is the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language at the University of Oxford. Whoa, it must feel a bit like wearing David Beckham's number, I would guess. Uh, (laughs) She's an academic authority on Geoffrey Chaucer and has written several books, including Chaucer, A European Life. She's here today to discuss her book, The Wife of Bath, a biography. Marion Turner, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So let's start with your interest in Chaucer. I'm curious as to when that took root. Was that before university that you discovered him or while you were studying or how did that happen? I did discover him before university. So in those days, everyone who studied English literature to a high level at at school, at high school in England, would study Chaucer. Mm. And I I liked it a lot, and I read more around the the particular tales that we were studying. But it wasn't my, you know, my main passion at at that point. And I think that real fascination for Chaucer did develop more when I was at university, definitely. Was it his poetry that you were responding to or his era or were you able to identify what it was that drew you to him and his poetry? So I think it was largely the surprise of what he was doing. Mm. So so many aspects of Chaucer, when you first read them, for many of us, our immediate feeling is, wow, that's so modern. But of course, it's not. It's because we think things are modern that are not. (laughs) That in in fact, you know, a lot of the things that we think are new ideas and new thoughts in the 20th or 21st century are recycling older ideas. And so I became really fascinated by the fact that this poet writing in the 14th century was writing about things which we would think of as the death of the author, for example, the the power of literary texts on readers, was experimenting so much with literary form, was developing new ways of thinking about character, so that he was doing so many things which I think I, you know, as as a young scholar at that point, had just not known were being 
thought about intellectually in the 14th century. And that really hooked me in. Yeah, right. That's so interesting because I always feel that when I read contemporary authors who will have some almost like a gimmick and I always think, well, it's got to be the gimmick plus because just coming up with the idea is not necessarily that interesting or innovative. And in fact, every author who sat down has probably thought about it at one point or another. Oh, what if I what if I wrote a, a whole novel without using the letter E, for example, or something <laughs> like that? So, OK, so you have that idea, but the idea alone isn't enough. And, and as you're as you're suggesting, here we are, Chaucer, for a lot of people that might be the earliest author they ever read and things that they might think are are new or novel are actually in Chaucer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I mean, one interesting aspect of what you're just saying about that idea about originality is that on the one hand, originality itself wasn't prized a few hundred years ago the way it is now. You know, mm. authors were thought of as needing to be original so that someone like Chaucer is using a lot of sources in great detail. You know, most he's not making up the stories usually. Mm. He's usually getting those from other sources. However, he is being in extraordinarily innovative and original in the way that he treats those stories, what he does with them, the way he uses language, the way he crafts the stories. And with things such as his his development of, of completely new poetic forms in English, for example, his use of new forms, new genres, the fact that he is the person that invents the something like the iambic pentameter, which, you know, so the, the which becomes the building block of English poetry. So the ten syllable five stress line, which was refined and polished later. But he's the first one to to use it. He gets that from an Italian poetic line that he develops. And so that kind of example where we see the way someone is both rooted in traditions and in the poetry that's around them, but also is able to do new things for themselves. Do we know enough about him and his life to know where that that spark or that desire came from? Was it was it an, an artist's idea of wanting to be new and, and shock people and, and make his verse different? Or do we know if this fit his personality or if it was just uh, did it help his poetry sell better or <laughs> <laughs> definitely wasn't that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know he never made a penny from his poetry you know he he didn't make money from his poetry at all I mean we know a huge amount about Chaucer as you will see in my biography Chaucer a European Life yeah. we do we have this huge you know hundreds and hundreds of life records and that is partly because my country is very bureaucratic, very good mm, at keeping mm -hmm. records. Yeah. And he was a civil servant. So we have tons and tons of records. You know, when he when he traveled abroad, we know how long he was away for and how long it took because he was paid by the day. And we have all those records, you know, for instance. So we have wonderfully rich life records. I mean, I think that when we're thinking about any individual, but maybe particularly in this in this area of thinking about an artist, there's always a, a lacuna. There's always a mystery, isn't there, about mm -hmm. how a genius is able to write in the way that that they do. It isn't something that we can break down into a because of this. Therefore, they wrote this extraordinary work. Right, you know, if it, right. it was a if we could do it by numbers, then you know everyone would do it. But I think that you know, in, in terms of your specific question about why might he have embarked on this very novel experimental kind of writing mm -hmm. i think i think one of the main things i would point to is that unlike 
the people and the authors that surrounded him. Chaucer knew Italian and he'd probably picked that up because he was a merchant's son living in mm. London where there were lots and lots of immigrants, traders, bankers coming in. He lived very much in that trading world. And then when he became attached to the court, he was chosen to go on diplomatic missions to Italy. And he went there at least twice, you know, riding to Italy in the 1370s. And so he then encountered the poetry of Dante, of Petrarch, of Boccaccio, the people that had been pioneering all kinds of things in Tuscan, so in the vernacular Italian language. And he had access, you know, more access to those texts than that other people who surrounded him did because of his language knowledge. And I think that was a particular spark, a particular inspiration for him to think, well, what can I do with English? Look at these things that, look at these new things that are being done in Italian. And that I think was a real kind of creative prompt for him then to, to go off on really experimental journeys in his own poetic life. Right. And then once you're in that mindset of I can... I can take something that I see is working over here and I can apply it in this realm over here. It almost seems like it would help open him up to do the things that he did in terms of, uh, for example, having a character who was unlike any who had appeared before. Yes, absolutely. And so, and the, I mean, the wife of Bath is a great example of when an author takes sources and traditions and then turns them into something else entirely, because mm. of course there are lots of literary characters that lie behind the wife of Bath. But as I argue in my book, she is, is quite different from those sources. She is, as I say, the first ordinary woman in English literature. Yeah. She doesn't come out of nowhere, but she is. So I could, I can talk a bit about how, how Chaucer changes those, those sources and what he, and what he does, if you'd like. Yeah. So the, the previous examples, I think you list a few of them, virginal princess or queen and, and nun or witch, sorceress, damsel in distress. Those are all kind of types that we might've seen before, but what was she like? How was she different from those or, or allegories or the other uh, uh, servants, yeah, yeah. things like that? Yeah, absolutely. And so in general, I would say that the majority of, of characters in in literature and English before The Wife of Bath, the majority of female characters had fallen into either the, the good women who were virgins, marriageable daughters, princesses, nuns, saints, or the bad women who were prostitutes, procuresses, old witches, old crones, those kinds of figures. So The Wife of Bath, when I say she's ordinary, I mean, for instance, she is middle-aged. She's what we would think of as middle class. She has a job. She has sexual desires. She talks about those sexual desires. She goes on holiday. You know, she travels. She talks to her friend. She drinks a bit too much. She's problematic in tons of ways. You know, she's she does lots of things that many people would find, you know, appalling, unpleasant, um, difficult, while also being you know, funny and interesting and self-aware. So she's She's a mixed character. You know, she's neither perfect nor nor absolutely damnable. And she comes from the kind of middling area of society that that many people could identify with in a way that they can't identify with, you know, a saint or mm. a prostitute or a witch. Um, so in those ways, she's a she's an ordinary woman. Um, she's a woman who who can speak more for others. At the same time, she she is 
drawing on on sources. And one of the main sources that that Chaucer was drawing on was a figure called Lavielle from the Romance of the Rose. So this is a 12th and 13th century French text that was you know, one of the most influential texts in, in medieval Europe, you know, hugely influential. Now, Lavielle is indeed that type figure of the old prostitute procuress. Chaucer takes many of many of the aspects of Lavielle and then transforms them. So while Lavielle has is is a is a socially marginal figure, someone who's been a, a prostitute who you know is procuring women for men. The wife of Bath is essentially respectable. I mean, she talks a lot about mm. sex, cheeky, but she's a married woman. She's been married five times, and you know, she has not been doing things that are outside the normal bounds of society. Women did often get married lots of times then, and compared to Lavielle, so Lavielle is a is a very cynical and, and monstrous old woman and while the wife of Bath takes lots of her lines she then adds a lot to them you know she's so much funnier she's so much more self-aware she thinks much more about time she has hope for the future and she has an ethical sense which mm. comes across in both her prologue and her tale which Lavielle absolutely lacks so Chaucer has taken a real stereotype socially transformed it but also transformed that stereotype into a much fuller and more complex figure. When did readers start responding to her in particular? And I should say that I think, uh, I don't know what things are like in the world of Chaucer studies, but among the general public, I think the wife of Bath is so anthologized, it almost seems fair to say that she's as famous as the tales themselves. Yeah, She probably outnumbers all the other excerpts them combined is probably fewer than the number of times the wife of bath is is anthologized so did that happen right away was she an immediate hit with readers poetry and other uh, scholarships we can see yes essentially so right from the very start if we think about the very first reader the very first reader of course was chaucer himself and it's clear that the wife of bath interested chaucer mm -hmm. in a way that other characters did not. <laughs> right. So he gives her much, much more to say about her own life, about her own subjectivity. You know, he, he he allows us much more access into her sense of self. You know, so so really that is where he starts experimenting with what a lit literary character can be and is. He then puts her into other Canterbury tales. So she's referred to in other Canterbury tales. And in one, you know, we see her in the wrong level of the tale, where the characters within a tale are referring to the wife of Bath, who is outside that, who should be in the world of the tellers. So she kind of crosses levels of literature. And then in one of Chaucer's short poems, he refers to the wife of Bath. So telling his friends to read the wife of Bath. He doesn't do that. Chaucer doesn't do that with any of his other characters. He doesn't allow them to get outside of the of the Canterbury Tales and into his other poems. So I think right from that very you know initial moment of writing, we can see that the wife of Bath is different from Chaucer's other characters, and that that does go on. So we don't have that much you know evidence of how. Chaucer's contemporaries were immediately reading his texts. What we do have are um, comments on manuscripts. So Chaucer died in, in 1400, and we have quite a lot of manuscripts from the 15th century. So 
from the time after Chaucer's death. And a lot of the scribes who wrote out the manuscripts would write comments, which are called glosses, in the margins of the manuscripts. Now, most commonly, those glosses are just things like little pointing fingers, which are called manicules, pointing to you know, important bits of the text, or little phrases which say things like, nota bene, you know, note well this mm. thing, mm-hmm. or references to sources, you know, saying, well, this comes from this bit of the Bible. But what we see in lots of manuscripts is scribes writing an awful lot more next to the Wife of Bath's prologue in particular than they do to, on, on the parts of the manuscript which are you know the rest of the Canterbury Tales so we see very early on scribes being you know obsessed with trying to to argue with the wife of Bath really so they they're fascinated by her but they're also troubled by what she says and they want to give a counter voice and speak against her and mm-hmm. then we also early examples I mean just you, know, you were just talking about the idea that in in modern times you were saying that you know she's excerpted more than all the rest put together and in quite an early example the poet Skelton kind of describes the Canterbury Tales he gives four lines to the Canterbury Tales as a whole and then ten to the wife of Bath describing the wife of Bath <laughs> that's an exact you know, late medieval example of what you were describing um, later on yeah I just I'm fascinated by the idea. It, it really makes me want to imagine what was happening in Chaucer's mind as he was as this character was sort of running away from him in in a sense. <laughs> and it it reminds me of uh, a story Mark Twain had told about how he he one day could just hear Huckleberry Finn's voice and it it was so interesting and he sort of said I could just put my feet up and listen to him all day. And it, it, you wonder if Chaucer felt that way about the wife of Bath, if he felt like, boy, here I've come across this point of view of this that just isn't heard, but is a, a point of view of the people I know, the women I know, that it's, it's been like an unheard voice, but I think I can really use this to say a lot, or maybe... I'm wondering what she, how she would respond to this. So I want to put her in this situation and that situation and then kind of let her talk. Do we have any awareness of whether there was a woman in Chaucer's life who, who he, who, you know, he, he was in love with or he knew well or a sister or anything like that, that, that could have triggered this kind of woman that he was writing about? Or, or do we think it just sort of came out of his mind? Well, wow, there's so much there that I'd like to to respond to. I mean, just briefly first, when you were talking about Mark Twain, I read an article recently about the number of um, writers who do hear the voices of their characters. Mm. And it's really common for them actually to report hearing the voices of their characters. And it's also very common for readers to say that they hear the voices of the characters in books that they read, yeah. which I think is really, really interesting how much people are you know, listening to those voices. And that, of course, was something that was perhaps much more you know, implicitly encouraged in societies where literature was much more of an oral form as well. Because, you know, today, so many of us read silently on our own, whereas in Chaucer's day, people were reading out loud, usually publicly, usually in groups, you know, talking about these characters, literally hearing people voice those characters. So I think I mean, that's a side point to your main question, but it is interesting, I think. Yeah. But in terms of your, your question there about the, the women in his life, I mean, so one thing that I'm absolutely not arguing is that she is based on a specific woman. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to look at the way that Chaucer is pulling together 
literary sources and the historical reality around him and putting all those things together to create this particular kind of character. At the same time, I think the historical context, the women that were around him are crucially important in trying to think about that because both then and now, there are many societies in which a woman like this simply would not make sense. A woman who is able to inherit money, is able to work and earn money, can make choices about her marital partners, can leave the house on her own, can travel on holiday without her husband or father, can you do all those kinds of things. There are still societies today in which that kind of woman simply is not imaginable. Mm. And in the 14th century, there were lots of societies around the world and even around Europe in which that kind of woman would not really be imaginable. But at that time in England, that kind of woman made complete sense. Yeah. At that, in the late 14th century, after the plague, you know, people have called this era a, a kind of golden age for women. And I think it's really important not to idealize that. Of course, there were all kinds of problems for women at that time. However, they did have a lot more opportunities than people often imagine was the case for, for medieval women. You know, they did, many medieval women did have jobs, did control their own money, were able to marry many times and keep their money and you know, be able to, to have a certain amount of economic control and a certain amount of control over their sexual destiny. So I think that does really matter in thinking about it. I don't want to suggest that she's a timeless character, although she has been meaningful for so many people in so many different eras. She's still rooted in her own historical moment, which was such a fascinating historical moment. And the, you know, the first half of my book tries to, to recreate that by telling the stories of lots and lots of different medieval women. But I think you were also just asking about, you know, the women in Chaucer's life. And Chaucer was surrounded by all kinds of, of strong and interesting women. You know, his mother was a property owner who, um, who remarried as well. And his wife was a lady in waiting in a great household who always had her own salary and her own money. His daughter became a nun in a very prestigious nunnery with highly educated women. When he lived in London, he was surrounded by mercantile women who would often run their own businesses, particularly if they were widows, they would often go on running their husband's businesses, though they could also trade on their own. And when Chaucer was at court, the courts were presided over by very powerful women who were often cultural patrons as well, Philippa of Haino and then Anne of Bohemia. And Chaucer's own first employer was a woman, Elizabeth, Countess of Ulster, who married one of the king's sons, so Lionel of Antwerp, one of the sons of, of Edward III. And Elizabeth was employing Chaucer as a page boy when he was a teenager. So he had lots of examples in his life of women who had real power, who had voices that were listened to. But in literature, there were not many examples of ordinary women whose voices were heard. Yeah. It is funny how there can be a divide like that. I, I remember, I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with the show Seinfeld, but I, I can remember yeah. when I was in college and that came out and Elaine felt like such a revelation. And it. I just remember thinking, this this character is like the people I know. This is like the this is like yeah. the women I'm going to school with here. This is who they are, and you know they remind me of her. And it, it's it felt like she was so advanced in terms of uh, not just being the 
the beautiful bombshell that the men all acted stupid when they were around her or not like the other stereotypes that you might see on television sitcoms, but that she just felt real and three-dimensional. And and I'm guessing that the wife of Bath felt that way for a lot of people who were early readers of, you know, well, maybe this is something for us to argue about, but we can't deny that there are people like this that we know. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting comparison. It, it made me think about, so in, in Zadie Smith's recent version of The Wife of Bath, so The Wife of Wilsdon, there's a great line where um, she says, the shock never ends when women say things <laughs> usually said by men. And in a way, that could be applied to someone like Elaine as well, couldn't it? The, the kind of the, the surprise, the shock of that kind of character that we keep seeing, that we, we keep being surprised by, because it is still unusual to have those kinds of frank, more, more down-to-earth women in in, yeah. in our show. Yeah, she's just one of the four. She's not... Uh... <laughs> okay, well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. I want to ask you some questions about how one writes a biography about a person who did not actually exist. Okay, we're back with Professor Marion Turner, expert in Chaucer and the wife of Bath. Professor Turner, what approach did you take to this book? You could have written a, a, a character study or an analysis, a full-length book even on the wife of Bath, but instead you styled it as a biography. So what does that mean? Yeah, so I know in some ways it seems odd, doesn't it? The, the idea of writing a biography of someone who, who didn't exist and i think there were there were two i think main reasons for that so the first was that i wanted to tell lots of women's stories so i'm interested in the wife of bath as an experiment in literary character but i'm also interested in her as as a comparison with real historical women and so you know by taking her as my lens i could then really listen to lots of other women's stories and tell those stories. There's often limited evidence. So we have, I can tell little snapshots about lots of interesting women and relate them to the wife of Bath. So in the first half of the book, you know, one of the things that I do is I take different aspects of the wife of Bath, the fact that she's multiply married, the fact that she's a working woman, the fact that she's a traveling, wandering woman, and the fact that she's a female storyteller. And then I compare her, you know, I tell the stories of people such as writers like Christine de Pizan or Heloise, travellers, the maid who travels around Europe and gets a great new job in Rome, abandoning her employer, multiply married women like the 15th century duchess who marries at age 65, marries a teenager, you know, mm. working women who inherit money, women who formed unions in the 1360s. I could kind of recover a lot of interesting voices. Yeah. And then I suppose the other aspect that I found Kind of experimental and interesting about this idea of that I had about doing a, a biography of a literary character was to let her cross time. Mm -hmm. So to think about this cross-temporal aspect. And one of the the inspirations for that was thinking about Virginia Woolf's Orlando. It's a, a fictional book, but it's it is also a, a fictionalized biography of a real person, Vita Sackville West. And again it crosses time and thinks about the character also crosses gender and 
Wolf is also writing about gender across time, about hundreds of years and this kind of march through time. And I really like the idea of thinking about this character first within her text and then getting out of her text and starting this kind of journey across time, across the world, which then really allowed me to think about about gender in, in every era since the wife of Bath as well. And again, having this very specific focus but having a very wide lens because she went, you know, everywhere <laughs> into so many authors' texts. And it allowed me to then think about the medieval across time and right up to the modern day, which, you know, I found a really interesting thing to do. So so the biography was really a, an approach that allowed me to be to be experimental, to do lots of different things, but I hope to anchor it in something very, very coherent. Right. We I've done some episodes on Figures like that, Don Juan is one, and and sort of these literary archetypes that will recur in different eras and different societies and in the hands of different artists. And you really can kind of use that as a way of exploring what that era was thinking about a lot of these same themes. And she's certainly, I mean, she's almost like Robin Hood or King Arthur or, or someone like that who has kind of stepped out of the page, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, those examples that you give people such as Robin Hood and King Arthur are, are kind of mythical you know, figures who don't seem to initially to belong to any author. And so it's very interesting that the wife of Bath comes very specifically from one author, but then is taken up by so many others. I mean, there's not many characters like that. And the other women that are like that tend to be, you know, figures such as as Dido or Cleopatra or Helen of Troy. So again, these very kind of mythical figures and and queens usually, yeah, you, know, these, right. you know, so not not at all this kind of, you know, ordinary woman. So she's a very interesting example. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people thinking about this might think, okay, so you traced 500 years or so of, uh, is it 600 now, of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of the wife of Beth, and, and it's probably a march toward enlightenment. It's it's probably, we're looking at in the early days, people were, those old fuddy-duddies were scandalized by her licentiousness and so on, but today we've become more enlightened, we're more familiar with it, and, and we're more comfortable with it, and, and all of that. But instead, as you note, it isn't a story of decreasing misogyny over the centuries. So how was the yeah. 20th century in some ways more misogynistic than what you were able to see in the 15th century? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think it's a great it's a great example of just helping us to think about what happens across history more generally, because we'd all like to think, as you were suggesting there, that there's a, a kind of march of progress, that things improve. But as soon as we start to think about many aspects of the history of, of the, the 20th century, we realise how how wrong that is. So when you think about the wife of Bath across time, so for instance, in in the 14th century, there was no problem with the way that she talked so explicitly about sex and her body. Once you get to the 18th century, she's being censored all mm. over the place. When Pope writes his version, yeah. takes out all the bits about sex and genitals and liking to have sex in the morning and all those kinds of things. And so, it, you know, he truncates it and, and censors it very, very dramatically. Um, in the 20th century, so I think the most misogynistic examples that that I found of responses to the wife of Bath did come in the 20th century. Um, and the 1970s, the decade in which I was born, um, was a particularly dark time. <laughs> so I think the, you know, the, the most extreme example is Pasolini's version. So mm -hmm. Pasolini, 
film about the Canterbury Tales. And Pasolini, his response to the Canterbury Tales is extraordinarily limited because the, the point of the Canterbury Tales, above all else, is variety and diversity. You know, the idea that that you can t- we should all listen to lots and lots of different voices, different different kinds of tales. The fact that Chaucer is able to experiment with so many different genres and voices and perspectives and really suggests the importance of that. But Pasolini is only interested in sex. So all the, all the tales that he tells are about sex. And if they're not about sex in Chaucer, then he just puts in extra brothel scenes, often with really disturbing and, and degrading kinds of sex in them. And his depiction of the wife of Bath is really monstrous. You know, he takes away all of her fun and humour and vitality and the, the charm, which so, so many people have have found in her. And for Pasolini, this you know, middle-aged, sexually active woman is a figure of death. So having sex with her literally kills her fourth husband. And then her fifth husband just has no sexual interest in her, cannot get aroused. She ends up biting him on the nose in a kind of symbol of, of castration. She is absolutely the stereotype, but worse, that Chaucer had moved away from you know she's really extreme and as we see so often across time this real discomfort from some male authors or directors as well in this case real discomfort with the idea of of middle-aged female sexuality that's something that was very much alive in in the 70s and of course is very much alive today with with lots of people so I think that the fact that we don't see things getting steadily better across time is is really important for us always to think about that you know in many parts of the world we've seen real steps backwards in recent years and in laws about about gender relations in specific area that I'm looking at in this book about the wife of Bath happily we have actually seen really great examples in the last 20 years of, I think, very sensitive and more accepting and funny and clever interpretations of the wife of Bath. And I think that is, you know, that is partly because she's been taken up by a more diverse range of authors, by a lot more female authors in the last couple of decades, though I don't think that's the the only reason. But that's not to say that we're going to, that there's not going to be further downturns in the future, but I hope not. <laughs> So you say that in the 15th century, they were concerned with combating her rhetorical power. So was it the promotion of a kind of feminist view or what were they trying to combat? Well, so in her prologue, the wife of Bath is advocating for a very kind of sexually I suppose, liberated, we would think of, um, way of way for, for women to act in the world. And she's she's describing all kinds of very bad behavior and, and also that she that she partakes in, you know, kind of mm-hmm. lying and and so on to to her husbands. And the scribes, I think, who were writing on the manuscripts were very worried that, you know, women were going to readers were going to think it was okay to behave like this. And so but you know, in fairness, that doesn't mean that they therefore censor it the way that that was to happen in later centuries. But it means that they write a lot of things next to the wife of Bath's words, essentially saying, you know, this is really wrong. She's really terrible. And the way they do that often is by piling up lots and lots of biblical quotations against what she's saying. And she's often quoting the Bible in a very partial way. And then they also quote the Bible in a very partial way. But you know, when I was looking into these scribal commentaries. I found one really interesting example where, you know, the wife of Bath is is talking and the scribe 
right gives lots of biblical quotations right next to what she's saying and essentially these quotations are all saying you know don't listen to women women are so are so terrible you know, don't believe her and one of these one of these biblical quotations it's it's in latin but the english translation is you know, but the tongue of a woman no man can tame and i looked it up in the bible having read the the gloss in the manuscript and in the bible there is no mulierum there is no of a woman it's just but the tongue no man can tame it's not about gender at all <laughs> and so the scribe while saying don't listen to stupid old women you know they get it all wrong <laughs> is himself yeah misquoting the bible and getting it wrong it's so interesting this the kind of scholarship you're doing i'm thinking someone hundreds of years from now would probably be you know examining works from our era and saying look at how many times it was it was liked or retweeted or uh, look at how many comments this this passage provoked. And you're kind of doing the analog version of it by looking at what these uh, monks were <laughs> writing in the margins. And <laughs> OK, so I have uh, one final question for you on Chaucer. It is a surprise bonus question. Are you ready? Yeah. OK. One fine spring morning. You are strolling through the Kentish countryside when an April shower bursts forth, turning the air pleasant, but unfortunately creating some slippery ground. You fall and gently bump your head, alas. When you awake, you find yourself sitting under a tree with a table set for two. A genial spirit resembling J.R.R. Tolkien smiles and says, Hello, my dear fellow scholar. Today is your lucky day. You will be having tea with a special guest, and I have two possibilities of candidates I think you might like. You can either talk to Geoffrey Chaucer, asking him any questions you like about his life and writings and his inspiration for the wife of Bath. Or you can spend the afternoon talking to a woman from his era, an ordinary middle-class woman, and ask her whatever you like about her world and her worldview. Which do you choose? Oh, wow, that is such a incredibly difficult and clever question. Um, <laughs> right. So when you were first asking that question, in the first part of it, I was thinking, well, you know, who could I possibly choose other than Chaucer? I mean, this is going to be <laughs> easy because obviously I would go, well, it's going to be like Chaucer or Shakespeare. Right, right, right. Obviously, I'm going to go for Chaucer. You know, this is this is really no, no problem. But now that you've come up with The Ordinary Woman, I really am going to go for her. And mm. the reason I do that is that although, of course, I would like to know about whether the things that I think about Chaucer are, whether they stack up with what he thought. But I would say that I do know a lot about Chaucer already. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. we have a huge amount of evidence and he wrote so much that we know he wrote and we have that to draw on. And so although I don't feel I could ever know enough about Chaucer, I do have a lot. The Ordinary Woman is still such a, you know, such a, a difficult area of, of historical and of literary research. And although I've tried to, to piece together all kinds of things, and there are traces of Ordinary Women's voices all over the place, but I think that opportunity to speak to someone whose voice is not so much recorded elsewhere would be an opportunity that I, I couldn't pass up. Sorry, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, he had his say. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The book is called The Wife of Bath, a biography. Professor Marion Turner, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It has been a huge pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's listened. Okay, there we go. And if you are hoping to hear more about Chaucer from Professor Turner, well, you're in luck because we've invited her back and she has agreed. Hopefully, we will have that episode for you soon. Please do check out her book. In the meantime, The Wife of Bath, a biography. I think you will like it. We've got lots of good literature coming up for you here on the History of Literature. Black Shakespeare, Oscar Wilde, Henry James, Persuasion, and that's just the spring. 104 episodes this year. The gauntlet was thrown down by my rivals. Well, the rival that lives in my head and makes New Year's resolutions. Anyway, 104. Jack, 52 times 2, if you haven't guessed. Will we make it? We will. Hopefully... We will, we will. Will we? We will. My thanks to Professor Turner for joining us today. Did we say that yet? And here's one we didn't say, but we will. Thanks to all of you. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.